Thank you, ladies. Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. We're going to be in 7 through 18 this morning. Colossians 4, 7 to 18. This morning we will be closing out our series through the book of Colossians as we've gone verse by verse through this book, a series we've called Heavenly Minded. Um, and next week, we will begin study through the book of Matthew, which comes at a really good time for us, especially as we get ready, um, as we celebrate this Christmas season and we open the book of Matthew with the birth narratives of Christ. It would be a good uh, transition for us, comes at just the right time. But this morning, we will be closing out our series through the book of Colossians. We have defined heavenly-mindedness as having one's mind governed by the attitudes and affections of the very Spirit of God. And what we see as we go through the book of Colossians is that Paul has sort of neatly divided the book into halves. We have the first half of the book, which really discusses our status before God. What we are as people, as Christians, as followers of Christ, how we stand in front of God Almighty. What our status is before God. And there's really two major points that come to the foreground in the first two chapters of the book. The first major point that I see coming to the top is in chapter 1, verse 13 where Paul makes the argument that you and I, if we are followers of Christ, are citizens of the kingdom of God. He says in 1.13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the, king, uh, to the kingdom of His beloved Son. So that means that if you and I are followers of Christ, we have been granted citizenship in an entirely new kingdom. That we no longer belong to the kingdom of darkness. We have been transferred from that kingdom into the kingdom of Christ. The second point that seems to come to the top in these first couple of chapters, or a running theme throughout this, is that you and I are united to Christ. That you and I are tied to Him. We talk plenty of times about the headship of Christ, or you might call it the federal headship of Christ. What happened to Christ happens to us. We receive the blessings that are rightfully bestowed to Christ because of our union with Him. He says in 2.12, Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised Him, that is Jesus from the dead. Christ was punished for our sins. And because we are tied to Him, because we are united with Him, we receive all the benefits. Through faith, we receive all the benefits that He has rightfully earned. As we are tied to Adam, and as we are guilty of Adam's sin, as Adam's sin and the whole human race fell, So by faith in Christ, we receive all the blessings of resurrection and eternal life rightfully bestowed to Him. In the second half of the book, it takes a little turn in chapter 3. Where the first half 
Paul has argued about our status before God, how we, where we stand before God. We're citizens and we're united to Christ. The second half begins with, now what? So what? What does that mean for us? And I think the pivotal argument that Paul is making in this entire book can really be summed up in chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. I think if you were to ask Paul, we can't, this is pure speculation on my part, but I think if we could ask Paul, what was the main idea that you wanted to convey to the church at Colossae? I think he would point to chapter 3, 1 to 3, and he would say, this is the crux of the argument right here. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Because of your union with Christ, because you are a citizen of an entirely new kingdom, It must be a mind transfer as well. We must set our minds on the priorities of the kingdom of heaven. It's really us looking at what would our life look like right now if we were in heaven right at this very moment. How would we be living? What sorts of things would we be doing? What sorts of things would we find funny or entertaining or joyous? What are those things? If on that day, I will be fully indwelt by the Spirit of God and the only things I will think about are the things that He is concerned with. If right now I live with that very same Spirit in me, He has given me the ability to think that way now. That's heavenly mindedness. That's all we've been saying. Paul says a couple of times in there, put on the new man. So take off that, that sinful man. Put that aside. Don't pursue sins of the flesh any longer. Instead, put on the attitudes, the affections, the characteristics of Christ. Put those on like a suit of clothes and begin to walk as Christ walked. Now, as we bring this book to a close, there is one crucial question that remains. Let's assume that you and I are doing this. Let's assume that as we think about our lives at home, we're understanding that I am, I am bought with a price, that I am transferred into the do- out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of Christ, that I am fully bought in there. I understand where I stand. That He has indwelt me with the Holy Spirit, and I understand that I have that working in me. And now, in my daily life, at home, with my family, or by myself, wherever I am, I am seeking to apply those things to what I'm doing. Let's, let's assume that that's true. How does that affect your life as a member of the body of Christ here at Emmanuel Baptist Church? The crucial question I want you to ask is, what are you doing as a part of this body? What is your role here? How can you facilitate the ministry that happens at Emmanuel Baptist Church is another way of asking that. Let's look at our text this morning, Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 to 18. 
Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Now, if we're all honest, there are parts of Scripture that we often just kind of skip over. Just kind of run past. Who in here has not quickly read through a genealogy or two? All right? Let's just be honest with ourselves. So-and-so begat what's-his-name, you don't know who these people are, and you're reading it out loud, and these people don't have American English names, they've got ancient Hebrew names, and you're trying to apply all your phonic skills right there on the spot, and before long, you just kind of go, Noah, I know that one, let's get to some real meat, right? There are occasions where we are tempted to do that. Well, here we have in our text mostly a salutation, uh, uh, an exit to a letter, a closing to a letter. And Paul closes this letter a lot like you or I would close any letter. Uh, Jim says hi and give my regards to Murphy, right? Or whatever the names would be. We would probably do a very similar thing in our letters. So in the closings of the letters that Paul writes, and you can see this throughout the New Testament, a lot of the times where he closes a letter, it can feel very much to us like we're reading someone else's mail. And, and, and technically, I guess we kind of are reading somebody else's, else's mail. And we can't help but feel sometimes, maybe, does this really apply to us? Should, should I be reading this? Does this is this about me? But, but I think we have to ask ourselves one really crucial question. What did Paul want the Colossians to see and understand by closing his letter this way? What did he want them to know? What did he want them to be sure of? Is there anything that we, that they and we, are to see in the closing of this book? I think there's more here than simply Luke says hi. I think there's a lot more here. And I think the observations that we can make in these last few ver verses are transferable to us. 
Meaning there's something that we should do because of what we see here in the closing of this book. What Paul is saying to the Colossians in the closing of this letter applies to you and I as well. And it gives us plenty to think about in regards to how we operate as a church. So this is going to be a little bit different than most of the sermons so far. We're not going to go through necessarily verse by verse because I don't think we see the, the real meat of the Scripture, the point, that way. I think it's better if we look from a, a kind of a bird's eye view. We gather the point. But I want us to make just a few observations that I think are key in this text, understanding what Paul is communicating. The first observation is this, that each person has a job to do. Each person has a job to do. So bef- before we look at at who each person was, which we will do, I think it's important to see what role they're playing, what job they're, they're doing. So there are eight people mentioned as being with Paul in this passage that are, that are right there with him. There are eight people that are right there with him. And then there are two more that are called out from a distance. There's Nympha, who is in, we think, Laodicea, and Archippus, who we would think would be in Colossae. And then there's who knows how many people that are included in the brothers in, at Laodicea. He says, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea. The point is that there are at least ten people plus Paul that are singled out by name in this passage. And it's clear that each one of them has a job to do and are of vital importance to Paul. Some of these jobs don't seem very important at all. If you see Tychicus, Tychicus and Onesimus... They're going to carry multiple letters. So they're clearly carrying the letter to the Colossians. But if you look at the end of Ephesians, Tychicus is also carrying the letter to the Ephesians, which we think Ephesians and Colossians were written at the same time. So he's carrying multiple letters. And it also seems that Onesimus might be helping him carry the letter. And we think that he's carrying the letter to Philemon. But we'll talk more about that in a second. So they are the carriers of the letter. But they're more than just carrying letters. They're going to be filling in the blanks. They're going to be going to Colossae and Ephesus, we would assume, and probably even to the house of Philemon and filling in the details of what Paul is doing, what's, what's happened there, if there's anything missing from the letter. But then next he mentions uh, the Jewish companions that are with him. He says Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus, or Justice as he is called, And we know that they're Jewish because Paul says these are the only men of the circumcision that are among the people with him. That's a way of referring to the Jewish people. But it's what comes next in the text that's of interest here. Look at there in verse 11. Paul says, These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. So what we would understand by that in fellow workers is that applies to everybody that's in the list. These are his fellow workers in the kingdom, and these three are the only of the circumcision amongst his fellow workers for the kingdom of God. So Paul considers everyone in this list to be fellow workers with him for the kingdom of God. But what we see on this list are letter carriers Fellow prisoners in Aristarchus and Epaphras, at least. Epaphras, a committed prayer for the church at Colossae. We see there in 12 and 13, Luke, a physician. Perhaps he's attending to the needs of Paul and caring for him medically and maybe those others in prison as well. And then you have Demas. 
If you look at the people that Paul is greeting, starting in verse 15, there are two he calls by name. There's Nympha, who is a lady in Laodicea that's obviously opened her home for a church to be planted there. And then there's Archippus. And I think there's good reason to see Archippus probably as the pastor of the house church that meets in Philemon's house. In the book of Philemon, uh, Paul addresses the letter and he says, To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. So the assumption would probably be that Philemon, this is Philemon's house, he's opened his house for a church, that Apphia is probably his wife, and Archippus might be his son, and possibly also the pastor of the church that meets in his house. At least that's a, 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 probably a decent summation of what's happening. So we have two messengers, six additional companions that are doing different jobs. At least two of them are fellow prisoners with Paul, one of whom is a prayer warrior, so to speak, one of whom is a doctor, one hosts a church plant, and possibly one pastor. No, we're not told of the jobs of the other companions. We can only assume that they're similar in nature. They're performing different functions that are probably also relatively mundane. And yet Paul calls them fellow workers for the kingdom of God. The reason that this passage is so important is because it highlights the work that actually goes on for the kingdom of God. The work that actually goes on in the body of Christ. And it brings to light what it actually takes to do ministry. Now ministry is, of course, sharing the gospel and attending to the needs of those around us. But almost none of that happens inside a church without a whole host of other things going on. So around this one man, Paul, who is the spearhead of ministry to the Gentiles, is a number of people that are doing various functions like carrying letters, physicians, traveling companions, and who knows what else. But if we were to take this outside of Paul's context and just look at your average Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, local church, how many different pieces would we see? I do think there's no small crisis in the church today, where individuals seem to have lost their sense of purpose in the church. That we stopped asking the question, why am I here and what am I doing? What's my purpose here? And I think also our notion of church has shifted. The way we start thinking about the term church has moved, has changed. Now follow me because this is a little bit difficult to explain. The church, as we call it, is the name that we have given to members of the body of Christ. The collection, the global collection of the members of the body of Christ. So if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a member of his body. And if you are a member of his body, then you are a part of the church, right? If we were to look at all the members of his body right now, living and active and breathing inside the world today, 
would probably number in, I don't know, maybe the hundreds of millions globally. We would say, altogether, of that collection of people, that is the church. And then we have small local expressions like ours here in Tuscaloosa, Emmanuel Baptist Church. We would call her the local church. This is a small collection of the many members of the body of Christ. And so we call Emmanuel Baptist Church a church. So that means that if you all went away, let's say we got rid of all of you and we replaced you with an equal number crowd, all of which were unbelievers. Every last person in here is still preaching the gospel, still talking about the words of the scripture, still doing all of these things, but except every person sitting in the pew is an unbeliever. We would have a building, but we would not have a church. Now, if that is a new thought to you, or if you're thinking to yourself, really, would we not have a church? It's proof positive of what I'm about to say. Somewhere along the way, we stop thinking about the church as the individual members of Christ's body coming together, and we started thinking of the church as a corporate entity. If you've ever heard the expression, the church is a business, that's what I'm talking about. The church became the 501c3 that's filed with the government. It's a piece of paper. Regardless of who meets there, regardless of what's being taught, they are a church. The government recognizes them as such. This might have even seeped into your own vocabulary if you've ever started a sentence, I think the church should fill in the blank of what you think the church should, be, should or shouldn't be doing. Could you imagine what my wife would do if I came in and sat at the kitchen table and I looked around and I said, I think the Crosswhites should clean their house. She wouldn't say anything. She would just point to the closet where the vacuum cleaner is and say, get to work. The church is a family, and if you are a follower of Christ, you are a part of it. You are a member of it. The other reality is that the church is a body made up of many members. Some are feet, some are hands, some are fingernails, some are ligaments, some are small group leaders, some are teachers, some serve food, some clean up, some take care of the building in different ways. Some will be, be involved in different kinds of outreach to the community around us, but all are necessary and vital pieces of the body of Christ. And just as Paul considers all of them fellow workers for the kingdom of God, so we should consider each person in our body as a vital piece of our body. But when is the last time you asked yourself, what is the role that I play at Emmanuel Baptist Church? Now, it's not the same thing as asking, what am I good at? It's asking, how are you working for the kingdom of God under the direction of the leadership of Emmanuel Baptist Church? How are you working towards people hearing the gospel? How are you working towards disciples being made? 
we had some ladies in a previous church uh, who really were passionate about crocheting. They really loved to crochet. And they wanted to start a crochet ministry because, as you know, in the church, if you can just think of an activity and attach the word ministry at the end, well, there you have something that the church should do, right? So they wanted to start a crochet ministry. The problem is that the church, we're not a community center, okay? So we don't just want to collect people of affinity groups, put them together for an entertaining thing that we could do and say, hey, look, these people get together and crochet. So we had to start thinking, what is the kingdom work that we could be doing here? What is, how could we utilize your desire, your love for crocheting to actually further the gospel? Well, about the same time, we had some people that really wanted to uh, go to the neonatal intensive care unit in a local hospital and visit some parents that were there in the hospital around the bedside of their baby, their newborn infant, who's now in the NICU. And so we put the two groups together, and the people that love to crochet ended up crocheting baby hats and booties and blankets, and this provided a unique opportunity for our gospel-sharing team to go into the NICU bearing gifts for their kids in hopes that they would be able to pray with the families, in hopes maybe that they would be able to share the gospel with the families, and the two units working together actually served for the advance of the kingdom as an extension of local church. Amen. See, it's the thought process can't just be, I like to do this. It needs to be more like, how can God use what I am doing or what I love to do to bring people closer to Christ or allow them to hear the gospel for the first time? Amen. How can that happen? The truth is, each person, if you are a member of the body of Christ, you have a job to do. And you're a vital piece of our body. What is it that you're doing? See, God has brought you here for a reason. Yes. He's made you a member of this church for a reason. He has put you in that pew for a reason. Yes. Your talents, your abilities, your desires, your passions, that didn't escape his notice when he put together Emmanuel Baptist Church. What is it that he wants you to do? Second observation I want us to make. Contending for the faith is not about your name, but Christ's. Contending for the faith is not about your name, but Christ's. As I said at the outset, uh, there are 10 people in this list, 11 if you count Paul, and I think it's worth going through the people that are mentioned here and saying what we do know or don't know about them. We see Tychicus, like we said, as the bearer of these letters, and we're told in Acts that Tychicus is Asian. Now don't think uh, from, the con from the continent of Asia, don't think Chinese, think from Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. He's Turkish, all right? Um, the letter to the Colossian church, the Ephesian church, Laodicea, Hierapolis, basically any church listed in Revelation 2 or 3 is right there in a circle in Asia Minor. So he's likely carrying this letter or these letters because this is his home area. He knows the turf, he knows the back roads, he knows probably the people in some of these churches, and he knows how to get there. And so he's carrying this letter. But besides that, we don't know much else about Tychicus. Here's Onesimus, whose name means useful. He's mentioned there in verse 9. He's another letter carrier. 
he's a runaway slave. He's run away from Philemon, and he has likely come to Christ under Paul's ministry as he ran away from Philemon, after he ran away. And we get that from Philemon 10, 11, and 16. You can see what Paul references there. Now, the book of Philemon is Paul sending Onesimus back to Philemon with a letter saying, treat him kindly, even though he has run away. Besides that, we don't know much else about Onesimus. Aristarchus is mentioned in verse 10. He is a fellow prisoner here with Paul, and we know in Acts that he's a traveling companion of Paul, that he was caught up in the ruckus in the church at Ephesus, or around the city of Ephesus, and he was caught up in a, in a brawl there, and he is going to Rome with Paul to face Caesar. So he's in prison there with Paul in the writing of Colossians. Also in verse 10, you have Mark. He's, called, he's also called in other places John Mark. And he likely wrote the gospel of Mark. He's Barnabas' cousin, we see here in the verse. And he, and during Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey, Mark goes with them. And about halfway through, he deserts them and goes back to Jerusalem. So when it comes time to put together the second missionary journey, Barnabas wants to take his cousin, Mark, with him. And Paul says, I don't want that guy near me. He didn't really say that, but it's something like that. And it led to a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas, so much so that they decided to part company. Paul took Silas, and they went on a missionary journey. Barnabas took Mark, and they went on a missionary journey elsewhere. But here, 10 years later approximately, uh, Paul and Mark are working together again. Then we hit, but besides that, and besides the fact that he wrote a gospel, we really don't know that much about Mark himself. Jesus is mentioned here in verse 11 called Justice. We know almost nothing about him except that he was a Jew. And it's probably a different person than any other justices that are mentioned in Scripture, much less Jesus's. Epaphras came to Christ under Paul's ministry, and he most likely began preaching the gospel there in Colossae and probably is responsible for some converts that were made there in Colossae, and may have even been the founder of the church in Colossae. He's with Paul in prison, and he is in prayer for the church at Colossae. But besides that, we don't know much about Epaphras. Luke is traveling with Paul. He's a companion. He, he's a physician. He wrote the book of Luke and Acts. He's with, he's with Paul on much of his missionary journeys throughout Acts, but besides that, we don't know much about Luke. Demas is mentioned a few times in places like this where he's uh, thank, Paul is thankful for him having joined him. But then in 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So we know of Demas that he was a supporter of Paul, and then at some point he left Paul high and dry. But besides that, we don't know much about Demas. Nympha, whom I mentioned earlier, has obviously opened her home for a church plant. But besides that, we know almost nothing about Nympha. Last is Archippus, who is mentioned only here and in Philemon 2. And as I mentioned, he's probably the pastor of the church that meets in Philemon's home. But besides that, we know almost nothing about Archippus. Here's the point of going through all those names. If they weren't mentioned in random places throughout Scripture we would have no idea who they were. 
Think about what that means for just a second. We are Christians today because of their anonymous ministry for the kingdom of God. You and I believe in Christ and are teaching it in our churches and worshiping Him because of the anonymous work for the kingdom of God that these people put in 2,000 years ago. We don't study the book of Colossians without the letter carriers taking great care to take them to the church at Colossae. There may not even be a church at Laodicea without Nympha opening her home to the plant. There may not be a church at Colossae without Archippus serving there or without Epaphras evangelizing and committing to prayer. Now, ask yourself, why would these people commit to this work without any recognition? Because they're not working for their own name. They're working for the name of Christ. They're working so that Christ's name may be spread around the world, not so that their own name would be spread. We live in such a me-centered culture, and now social media has tapped into our natural addiction for praise. But it's fake fame. It's fake praise. You know as well as I do that you can, you can take a picture... And so long as it's got the right filter on it, and it looks really pretty, or maybe if it's got no filter, you can hashtag it, no filter, just to let everybody know how good of a photographer I am. If you've got all that set right, and you have enough friends that are in far enough places, it'll be liked by tons of people, maybe even around the world. But there's an implicit contract that we've all agreed to whether we realize it or not, when we engage in social media. I will like your comments and your posts and your pictures so long as you like my comments and my posts and my pictures. And all of us sign on that. And I'm talking about myself too. I'm not just talking about to everybody else. I'm talking about myself too. I'm guilty about it. Let's not lie to ourselves. We post pictures or witty remarks or even some ranting sometimes and it, there's all a sugar rush of praise that comes afterwards. People respond to what we're saying. But if we're not careful, all this will do is center my world on me. All I want is more people telling me how cute my kids are or how funny I am or how great I am. And all it does is serve to feed my own ego with praise. Sean Parker was a co-founder of Facebook. He was also the founder of Napster back in the day, if you remember that. Sean Parker, co-founder of Facebook. He said this recently in an interview, and I thought this was really interesting. He said this about Facebook. He said, Facebook is designed to exploit a vulnerability in human psychology to get its users addicted. We need to sort of give you a little dopamine hit every once in a while because someone liked or commented on a photo or a post or whatever, and that's going to get you to contribute more content, and that's going to get you more likes and more comments, which is going to start that cycle. It begins to shift the conversation to me-centered world. It is all about me. 
In contrast, there are legions of people throughout the history of the church, not least of which are named in this list here, that sacrificed their own desire for their own name so that Christ's name would be magnified. Epiphras is said to be agonizing in prayer. It says that specifically there he is agonizing in prayer. He's struggling in in his prayers for the Colossians. Need I remind you, he is in prison right now. He's not agonizing for his own needs in that sense, to open the door of prison. He's agonizing for the Colossian church so that the name of Christ might be magnified in all the world through them. How long can you and I do anonymous work? How long can we do anonymous work? How long can we continue to plug away without being recognized. Now, don't get me wrong. There are tons of people that serve in this church for which I am eternally grateful. There are people on Wednesday night and Sunday sometimes that are in the kitchen cleaning Shannon, Michelle, all of them, and all the people that help them. They plug away tirelessly cleaning up after us, and we're grateful for that. There are people that work in the children's building, Sandra, Patsy, Lynn, and many, many others that work along with them serving our kids. But even if we were to call out of all the names of everyone that we could think of that were doing things around this church, we're going to miss people. There are people doing things that we have no idea about. They're serving in ways we can't even imagine. We didn't even know. But think about this for just a second. There are people that are putting aside earthly prayer, knowing that one day they will hear the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. God be they are staving off temporary praise in order to hear their Heavenly Father say, Well done, good and faithful servant. How can you be more heavenly minded than that? That's essentially the center of it. How long can we do anonymous work? The third thing I want us to see here, there is no competition in the work of the kingdom. There is no competition in the work of the kingdom. And this is really the culmination of all the points so far. If, if, we, um, if we're each doing the job that the Lord has appointed us to do, and if we're looking for the Lord's fame and not for our own fame, then we'll see other churches around us, not as competition, but as co-laborers for the work of the kingdom. Paul writes them this letter, and then he tells them this in verse 16. Look with me there. He says, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So there's probably a letter that has already been written to the church at Laodicea. They have received it, and so he's wanting the Colossians read their letter and then exchange letters. Pass them back and forth. Because you see how they're working together. 
You see what Paul is trying to get them to do in the experience the expectation among the churches. Each of you have a letter that is mutually beneficial for each other's church, so share them with one another. This is a far cry from the competitive nature of the 21st century church. If I'm receiving this letter from the Apostle Paul, I might be tempted to think to myself, I have the inside track on church growth. I might present it on a blog, Seven Ways to Grow Your Church so that more people are attracted to our church. Well, that church down there, they're the the competition. They're not the competition because we're not in a business. They're co-laborers in the kingdom work because it's not our own name that we're working for. It's Christ's name that we're working for. And numbers aren't the only factor involved here. In growth, there are millions upon millions of churches throughout church history that never broke a hundred that on judgment day will hear, Well done, good and faithful servant. And that's not to disparage big churches either. There are plenty of them that are going to hear the same kind of commendation on judgment day. But it's because numbers isn't the standard for God's judgment. If your thought process is well, the, the churches down the road are the competition. It's really going to shock you when we start praying for other people's churches around the area that Christ-centered growth would happen in their congregations. Well, why on earth would we do that? Because we want people to come to know Jesus. That's the work that we're engaged in. And I don't care if anybody knows the name Emmanuel Baptist Church or Michael Crosswhite or anybody in here. So long as we are faithful and obedient to the ministry that the Lord has put us here to do, that is all that matters. I want the growth of Christian people. I want new people to come to know Christ at North River, at Alberta, at Trinity Presbyterian. And I want you to hear this from my own mouth, lest there be any conversation at First Baptist Gordo as well. I hope they are bursting at the seams with more people coming to know Christ and growth than anyone could possibly imagine. And so should you. In fact, we should pray for it because that's the work that we are involved in. We are co-laborers for the kingdom of God. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. You can insert the name of a church there. Our struggle is not against them. It is against principalities and powers now at work in this present darkness. And so we have to pick up a weapon and join the fight. Some of that will be support Some of that will be on the front lines. Some of that will be in strategy. There are many different ways in which you can pick up a weapon and join the fight. But we need to work for the kingdom of Christ. Now, Some of you may be asking, okay, you got me. What do you want me to do? And I would say to you, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) We're always in need of child care workers. Always. We are always in need of people, mostly serving in the nursery. We are always in need. Now, because of the nature of childcare work and nursery work, you have to understand 
There's going to be background processes involved. We're going to start rolling out at the beginning of next quarter some more training for child care workers. There's going to be lots of things like that in order to keep our children safe. So just because you volunteer today doesn't mean that you're going to be in the children's building tomorrow. But you need to understand, we need work there. We need help there. We need more people to volunteer there. We have positions open for Sunday morning, both Uh, in the service and at Sunday school. We have uh, Wednesday nights that we need help. There are times where we don't have enough people to watch the kids. We have to hire people to come in from the outside, and I think we can handle that in-house. I think we have enough people here to handle that. There is music that we're about to have a meeting about. Anybody that plays an instrument, that sings, that is interested in the music ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church going forward, I would ask that you just join us there and just hear what's happening. But there are probably a a multitude more people in this congregation that are doing ministry of various kinds already. Or may know of people groups that the Lord is calling them to, that they need to minister to. They need to work with. So it's not all about volunteering because they need my help here in the church. It's about all of us working as one cohesive unit, all contending for the faith, both here on Sunday morning and during the week out in the community at large. We, who are citizens of Christ's kingdom, have no excuse not to contend for the faith, not to pick up a weapon, not to do work of some kind, no matter how small or how big the job is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the word to the church at Colossae. I thank you for the work it's done in me as I have studied it over the course of these 13 weeks. I pray that it's been effective and helpful for people of this congregation. I pray that through the teaching of the principles that are at work in the letter to the Colossians that we would come together as a cohesive unit bound together by our mutual confession of faith in Christ. That we would commit to lives of holiness, putting on the new man, both in our homes, in public, and here, in the midst of all the ongoings on Sunday and Wednesday. Lord, I I pray that you would continue to knit this body together in unity and love. That we may go out for your name's sake in the community around us, boldly proclaiming the gospel, preaching Christ and him crucified. And I pray that we would see people come to know Christ because of the testimony of the people of Emmanuel Baptist Church. Pray also for the churches around us, North River, Trinity Presbyterian, Alberta, many of the other churches, Church at Tuscaloosa. Lord, that they would, even today, see fruit from the ministry that they're doing 
pray you give their pastors confidence and boldness to preach the gospel in truth and love. Pray that you would increase the fervency of their congregation to go out and minister to the community around them as co-laborers with us for Christ's kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.